This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Welcome, everybody. I want to invite folks who are still getting food to continue to do so, but to do it quietly, and we'll all make our way to seats. Well, I think that you are as excited as I am to have with us today Congressman Adam Schiff. Um, That's good. That should feel good. Congressman Schiff has been to our community um, several times before, and we are, we're thrilled to have you with us. He represents many of the people in the ECAR community, representing California's 30th Congressional District. He's in his 12th term in the House of Representatives, which means he's been serving in Congress almost as long as Rabbi Panitz has been alive. So... <laughs> I'm feeling very old now. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, he serves as a senior member of the House Committee on the Judiciary, which oversees administration of justice within our federal courts. Um, and, um, and I think that many of you, I'm not going to do the whole formal bio right now, um, but we all know of you and your extraordinary work. We have, wa- we have watched um, and held immeasurable gratitude as over the course of the past several years, you have really been a voice for sanity for justice, for accountability um, in Congress. And it truly matters. And I feel, I feel so grateful that we live in a place where we can actually be in this kind of relationship with our represented, uh, with our electeds. Um, and so thank you for making this a real relationship. By the way, one of the first things that Representative Schiff asked was, oh, tell me about when's your book coming out? Like he really, he knows us and he cares about us and our community. And I thank you for that. Um, nobody was whispering in your ear when you asked me that. So I really appreciate it. Look, we are, um, we're living through incredibly tumultuous and challenging times. And, um, and your leadership really matters. And so I'm holding here his book. This is not a book talk, which we did during the pandemic with Representative Schiff over Zoom, but I'm gonna keep it here um, because a number of the things that we're gonna talk about today, you speak about in great depth. This is, um, this is an extraordinary book that reads like a thriller. Um, and so it's really a page turner and it kind of gives you an inside look of what was going on um, during those very challenging years. Um, And so we'll ask a little bit about that today, but I just want to start by offering my immeasurable gratitude to you for your leadership and and to let you know that we're very eager to talk to you today um, about the issues of shared concern. Um, Many of the issues that you've really been at the forefront of the fight for are things that matter very deeply to our community, that our justice work as a community is organized around, and so um, we feel like we really have a great great partner here representing us in Congress. So we thank you, and I'd love um, if you can just open up by sharing with us some reflections about where your heart and your head are now as we walk through this particularly challenging moment in history, and then we'll engage in conversation. Well, uh, thank you, Rabbi, and thank you all for welcoming me. You are so lucky to have what may be the best rabbi in the country, don't you think? Um, She is 
just an extraordinary and brilliant leader, and it is always wonderful to sit down together. And it's uh, also, I want to take my hat off to all of you for being such an active and engaged congregation. Uh, I think the, the work that you do out in the community, the degree that you fight for justice uh, is remarkable. You are a congregation of doers, uh, and I have just enormous respect for that. So wonderful to sit down with you. Um, I haven't thought about the book for a while. Nice of you to, to give the book a plug. Um, and maybe I'll start with how I, I framed the book. When I was writing it, for those of you that spent time in Washington, um, you're, you're familiar with uh, uh, the, the insects that emerge every 17 years, make quite a racket, and then go back to sleep for another, another 17 years. And I premised the book by saying, you know, what, what kind of a country are they going to see when they wake up 17 years from now? Um, and that's probably a good place to start. We've been through an enormously tumultuous time, and it's not over yet. We'll see what happens next week uh, with the former president's call to protest what appears to be his impending arrest. What will this mean in terms of the rule of law and of justice? What will this mean in terms of the already frayed bonds of affection among our people? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I want to underscore is we're not, we're not uh, spectators in this. Um, the speaker likes to say to our caucus, and the same is true for all of us, she says, know your own power. And in my view, by the way, there will only ever be one speaker. <laughs> so what I, uh, what I refer to the speaker, that's who I'm talking about. Uh, I have to give you a digression about the other person occupying that office right now. My father's 95, and he asked me recently what I thought of Kevin McCarthy. And uh, I gave him a few of my thoughts on Kevin McCarthy, and he responded by saying, well then, as my bubba used to say, F him. Um, and he did not abbreviate, and I said, Dad, I don't think that's what Bubba used to say. And he responded, no, but it was strongly implied. Uh, but but the, the Speaker Pelosi likes to say, know your own power. Uh, it's true of all of us. We may have a large circle, or we may have a small circle, but none of us are, none of us are, are passengers on this journey, incapable of steering the country in the direction we want to take it. Um, I think it's very important as a matter of justice and the rule of law that we apply the law equally to everyone, uh, to presidents and former presidents alike. There have been concerns raised, you know, throughout the course of the last several years about what it means to the country to hold a former president accountable. Uh, are we better off not doing so because it might be too divisive or too jarring or too unprecedented? Um, but from my point of view, it is far more dangerous to establish a precedent that if you attain the highest positions of power, you are somehow immune from accountability. Yes. Uh, for four years during the last administration, the Justice Department took the position, flawed as a constitutional matter, but nonetheless that you can't indict a sitting president. And the logic was that a sitting president um, shouldn't have to undergo the rigors of a trial 
the distraction of a trial while they're trying to conduct the duties of their office. The problem with this is that a president can escape any accountability by outlasting the statute of limitations. But more than that, it doesn't answer the question, why can't you indict a president even if you defer the trial until they're out of office? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, if you're going to take the position as the department did that you can't prosecute a sitting president, and then you take the position that as a practical prudential matter, you also can't prosecute a former president because it would be too divisive or be perceived as too political, then you have immunized anyone who occupies that office. Uh, and that is an idea that our founders would have never subscribed to. Um, the speaker, the current speaker, you may have seen today, uh, joined in Donald Trump's call for protest, um, just adding potential fuel to the potential fire. Um, and this is the, the reckless nature of the leadership in the House right now. Uh, my takeaway, and I'll jump to the conclusion, after two impeachments and an insurrection, is that you can have the best written constitution in the world, and I believe that we do. You can have the best written laws meant to constrain the worst impulses of human nature, and maybe we do. And none of it will be enough if people don't give meaning to their oath of office, and if that oath isn't informed by ideas of right and wrong, and if we're unwilling to accept the basic truth or even the idea that there is something called truth. There's a, there's a reason why they have made a villain out of Anthony Fauci. And by the way, I think of all the destructive things of the last four years, probably none has been more corrosive to our democracy than this relentless assault on the truth. But Fauci has become a villain because what more, what better embodiment of truth and a fact-based inquiry than a scientist? Mm -hmm. It also shouldn't surprise us that, that in the era in which one party believes that the truth is for losers and suckers, that we should see the election of a George Santos mm -hmm. is really the flip side of the villainization of Anthony Fauci. Mm -hmm. If we can't agree on a set of shared experiences, then what basis is there to make decisions about policy or the direction of the country? Uh, we just fall back on party and tribe, which is what the autocrats would love. Mm -hmm. um, we're not out of the woods, but we will get through this. I have every confidence that we will get through this. We do not have the luxury of despair. This too shall pass. But what we do in this moment will determine how quickly it passes and how much damage we suffer along the way. Uh, and I look forward to the conversation today to discuss what we can do to move the country forward. Uh, how can we protect our democracy? How can we protect our rights and our freedoms? How can we protect our planet? Uh, there's a lot to discuss. Uh, and let me just stop right there and look forward to the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts about justice, accountability, and healing. Those three things are very different, but all interrelated, and it touches on some of your opening comments. Um, but I'm thinking back to um, 2016, right after the election, when we heard from a slew of historians, especially historians who studied the 20th century and studied fascistic movements in other countries, and essentially told us this is what the playbook is. 
Um, this is what we're going to see over the course of the coming months. And we literally saw an unfolding of precisely what they identified for us, including an assault on the truth. And I, I remember right after you know his inauguration when his team was saying in to early 2017 it was the biggest crowd ever and we're looking at the pictures on the screen of this very sparse crowd by the way the women's march was just you know packed with people but the inauguration was not and we all saw what the truth was but it didn't stop them from repeating the lie and this was exactly as the historians had warned us and so um, we saw an attack on the truth. We saw an attack on the press. We saw an attack on higher education. And the idea was if you can chip away at this kind of thinking early on um, and you get enough people to engage in what, what um, Timothy Snyder called anticipatory obedience, um, which is you know just not speaking out because we're going to see what happens. Let's wait and see. It's not so bad. And then we wake up when it's, when it's over and democracy's gone. Um, one of the things that we're warned about by the historians is that if we fail to hold people accountable when we have the opportunity to do so, that we are creating permission for them to step back in and finish the job when, as soon as they're given the chance to. And so I, I don't, I'm curious to know if you think that justice can be achieved here. If we cannot achieve justice, can we achieve accountability? And does healing, national healing, which... I have to say, we, we should all care about, but not as an excuse uh, to not engage the other two, but as an ultimate goal, um, is healing possible without justice um, and or accountability in your perspective? Um, that's a, that's a, a great and big question. Um, let me start with crowd size. Um, <laughs> when we subpoenaed uh, Donald Trump to come before the January 6th committee, he sent us a 13 or 14 page diatribe, uh, which in itself was not all that surprising. But you know, in, if, you, if you actually bothered to read it, it was in a way such a window into his mind as, as disturbed as it was. Uh, and if I were writing the physician desk reference new page on malignant narcissism, this would be my exhibit A, and that is, you know, buried among the litany of complaints was the complaint that he still hadn't gotten enough credit for the size of the crowd on January 6th. <laughs> I kid you not. Uh, and included even photographs from January 6th. Now, I'm not talking about the inauguration crowd size. But he's upset that he hasn't gotten enough crowd, uh, you know, credit for the size of the insurrection. Um, you really have to be living completely in your own um, warped world to think that that's the problem around January 6th. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, um, what we did in the, in the January 6th committee, in the absence of his testimony, is we tried to bring about the accountability that Congress can provide, and that is exposure of the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what made those hearings look so unusual was not what a lot of the commentators focused on which was the fact that we hired a very seasoned ABC executive to help us package the material. Um, those were very useful uh, packages, for example, to explain something complicated like the fake Elector plot in eight minutes. You could do it in a, in a package where if you tried to elicit it from a witness, it might take several hours. Mm -hmm. But what really made the committee look different wasn't the use of technology as much as it was 
the fact that you had a committee of Democrats and Republicans who shared a common objective, and that common objective was getting out the truth. That's what made those packages possible. But more than that, it's why you never saw us fighting. Uh, you never saw us grandstanding. You didn't see us talking over the witnesses. We actually wanted to hear what the witnesses had to say, and more importantly, we wanted the country to hear what the witnesses had to say. Now, our role as oversight and, and through oversight, a form of accountability, but we don't have the ability or the authority to prosecute people. Uh, the most we can do is what we did, which was refer to the Justice Department, the President and others for potential prosecution and set out the evidence that we believe supports those charges. It'll now be up to the Justice Department uh, as vis-a-vis -vis January 6th and the Fulton County DA uh, to decide whether to move forward with charges. I have been very critical of the Justice Department uh, for the very slow pace of its investigation. Uh, for the first year of that investigation, they confined, it appeared, their work to those that broke into the Capitol, those that beat police officers, but confined themselves to really looking at the foot soldiers uh, in, the, in the broader effort to overturn the election and to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, it didn't appear that vis-a-vis -vis other multiple lines of effort to overturn the election, they even began investigating it until about a year after the events. Uh, events like the president on the phone with the Secretary of State in Georgia demanding he find 11,780 votes that don't exist after his own attorney general had told him that those claims of fraud uh, were in Barr's words BS. Now, part of the reason I think the Justice Department has been so slow is that Merrick Garland wanted to move the Justice Department away from any perception of politicization after the disaster that was Bill Barr. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Bill Barr has been masquerading as a defender of justice and democracy. Uh, and while I'm glad that he found a line he wouldn't cross, he crossed so many lines before he got there. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, let's remember this was an attorney general who, and we haven't seen this since Nixon, intervened in specific criminal cases to make them go away completely, as in Michael Flynn, or to reduce the sentence and later pardon people like Roger Stone, and to set the apparatus of the federal government to investigate the president's enemies, as in the Durham investigation. Uh, and, and I think Merrick Garland quite properly wanted to reestablish the department's reputation for independence, which is laudable, but taken too far confers a kind of immunity on the former president. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know whether the Justice Department will bring about justice, whether it will do what the Attorney General committed to doing, which is to following the evidence wherever it leads, because it has led in its most significant path to the former president. But I hope that this is not simply going to be a prosecution in Manhattan over hush money payments to a porn star. Uh, and by the way, the Justice Department said that Michael Cohen needed to go to jail mm. for his participation in a scheme in which, according to the indictment, Michael Cohen was coordinated and directed by individual number one, otherwise known as Donald Trump. And so what's the argument that the guy who was coordinated and directed needs to go to jail, but the guy who did the directing and coordinating gets a pass? 
And yet the Justice Department didn't move on that case. Uh, it took the Manhattan District Attorney. So the question of justice uh, is yet to be determined. In terms of reconciliation, and is that possible without justice, is certainly, in my view, made immeasurably more difficult. Um, and it's going to be a hard enough road as it is. I, I, I have kept coming back to something that the historian Robert Carroll once said in an interview. He said that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it says a lot about who we are. Uh, and over the years, power has revealed a lot of the people I serve with um, to not care about any of the things they said they cared about, not to believe in any of the things they said they believed. It has revealed others like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger to be people of great courage and conviction. But it's also revealed a deep vein of bigotry running through the country since our founding that has always been there ready to be exploited by a demagogue. Um, and any reconciliation that doesn't address that will never be successful. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm going to... I, I want to circle back to the role of um, racism and white supremacy and what we've learned over the course of the, through the Trump regime and, and now. Um, but, but first, if we can, uh, just, I want to, I want to take a, a, a little bit of a turn for us um, to talk about abortion care, um, abortion rights, reproductive freedom and reproductive rights. And um, I, I mean, we have been, um, all of us, I, I, I think, um, have been quite shaken by what happened uh, last spring, um, even though at some point it seemed inevitable that, um, that Roe would be overturned, um, to see how quickly this has um, turned many of the states in the country into really no-go zones. Um, and I, I read, there was a beautiful piece in the New York Times that actually our very own Liz Hirsch was quoted in um, about the great work that the vice president is doing um, to advance the conversation um, around reproductive rights. Um, I also know that there's this Women's, um, Women's Health Protection Act um, that it seems like it's going to be hard to pass anything um, meaningful in this Congress, and tell me if I'm wrong um, about that. But what is it that you believe that you and we can do in order to, um, to protect these rights that we believe are so, that many of us believe are so um, essential to the health of so many people in this country, women and non-binary um, folks who, uh, who really need to have, uh, to have this access to care? I think it's, it's worth um, stepping back and, and taking a look at how we got to where we are. Uh, there are any number of structural problems in our democracy that, uh, that result in a country where for the first time we are moving backward, not forward, when it comes to our rights and our freedoms. Um, one structural impediment to our democracy is the gerrymander. The result of which is that for much of the time, the House of Representatives, like it is today, is controlled by a party that loses the popular vote. Um, the gerrymander in New York was unsuccessful by Democrats. It was struck down. The gerrymander by Republicans in Florida was successful. If you reverse those changes or neutralize them, the, Dem the House would probably likely be in Democratic hands, and we could pass legislation 
in the House to protect uh, women's abortion care and reproductive freedom. The Senate is likewise often controlled by a party that loses the popular vote because of the overweighting of rural states. Uh, and so when justices come before the Senate, they're coming before generally a very unrepresentative U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. The presidency is often occupied by someone who lost the popular vote because of the Electoral College. And the product of all of those biases in the system uh, has resulted in the most unrepresented body in the country, and that's the Supreme Court of the United States. One remedy which I uh, have become a very vocal proponent uh, is expanding the size of the Supreme Court. Um, it's something that I would have never uh, I would have never embraced a few years ago, but then a few years ago I would have never imagined that a Senate leader uh, in Mitch McConnell would so game the system as to deprive a Democratic president of an appointment um, under the rationale that nine months before election was too soon to appoint a justice and then jam one down our throats uh, while people were literally voting for Joe yes, Biden yes. In, in a just shockingly, chokingly hypocritical act. The result of which is there are two justices on the court who don't belong there, uh, many other justices who also don't belong there for other reasons. But the court has been stacked. Uh, and the question is, are we willing to unstack it? My kids are now in their early 20s. I'm not content with the idea that they should live their entire adult lives under a reactionary Supreme Court, a partisan reactionary court. This is not a conservative court, uh, certainly not in the legal sense. If it were a conservative court, it would have some reverence for precedent. It obviously has none. Um, one of my colleagues in the House uh, recently told me without explanation, you're the perfect messenger for expanding the Supreme Court. Uh, and although they didn't tell me why they thought I was the perfect messenger, I suspect it has something to do with what Jim Brolty, the former Republican Party chair and a Republican senator, told me when we were both in the state Senate, when he said, Adam, you know, you're the worst kind of Democrat. You're the worst kind of Democrat. And I said, how's that, Jim? And he said, because you're just as progressive as the rest, but you sound so damn reasonable. <laughs> and, you know, I think to get people to open their mind to the idea of, of expanding the court, when most people's natural predilection to the degree they have any understanding at all of the issue is to think back to Roosevelt and court packing and, and have a negative association. We need to make the case, and it will take time to make, but if we don't start making it now, it'll never take place. We need to start making the case that they have packed the court. And the only question is whether it is unpacked. The other remedies that we have at present are mostly at the state level, to do what Michigan do, did, to do what Kansas did. Uh, and of course, we've had tremendous success, even in conservative states, in ballot measures to protect reproductive freedom. Uh, because Rabbi, you're right, there's probably nothing we can get through the House, and we have to be worried that what gets through the House may be a national abortion ban, uh, not a, a uh, corrective or a protection of people's rights. We also need, and this is vital not only to women's reproductive freedom, but so many other foundational issues uh, as well, uh, foundational in terms of our voting rights, 
to get rid of the filibuster. Mm -hmm. um, I'm often um, the subject of commentary by fellow Democrats who wish Democrats would fight more like Republicans. And I usually reject the idea because I don't want to become them. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't want our party to engage, my party to engage in the kind of ugly, often bigoted, um, and corrupt practices that I see of the, of the Trump Republican Party. But there are ways in which my party has completely handicapped itself. And this inexplicable devotion to the filibuster by some in our party, the elevation of this archaic rule, which has a pernicious history mm -hmm. of protecting Jim Crow and is a pernicious present of, again, protecting a different generation of Jim Crow, to elevate that over protecting women's reproductive freedom or protecting voting rights or protecting young people and old people and people in between from the scourge of gun violence is just incomprehensible to me. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that if Mitch McConnell was controlling the Senate and McCarthy was controlling the House and they had a Republican in the White House and they felt something was existential to their party, not to mention to the country, they would find a way around the filibuster. Uh, and the fact that we haven't and didn't when we controlled the different branches of government is a shame on us. Uh, and, and that's something that we have to change. I, I am really grateful to hear you say that. I am very heartened by that. And, you know, I think part of what needs to happen right now is voices like yours need to actually shift the Overton window on these questions. I remember even during the last election season, um, when Democrats were asked about packing the court, they were like deer in headlights. Like, are we allowed to say that we support whatever creative thinking and measures need to happen in order to uh, save democracy? And, um, and so I'm really heartened to hear that you're thinking seriously about these things, and um, I hope that that will also give others the sense that they can speak um, and think creatively and openly about it. Um, it also, it, I think that the attack on history right now, um, the whole, the whole like DeSantis fantasy land of limiting people's access to information and to knowledge so that we can create the kind of reality um, that we want to live in rather than the reality that, that is rooted in truth is also at the heart of this because the attachment to the filibuster and to the electoral college seemed to me to be um, really de devoid of an awareness of where those um, institutions developed from. And so to hear you talk about the roots of Jim, of Jim Crow, um, white supremacy and really anti-black racism in the, built into the institutions of our, um, that, of our government are, is absolutely essential. We, I mean, even if they are trying to pull out Rosa Parks' blackness from the textbooks, we have to continue to speak the truth. We have to speak um, from a real awareness of, of where history was and where we need to go. So I'm very grateful to hear you speak like this. I want, um, there was an article this morning about Wyoming, where the governor of Wyoming, they're advancing a full abortion ban, including, um, uh, including a f um, there's a felony clause in it that any doctor or medical professional that performs an abortion um, can be charged with a felony. And I was so struck um, by, by the quote from the governor. He said, um, I come to this from a fully unbiased perspective. I prayed on it, and this is where I came to. 
And so I want to talk to you a little bit about the role of faith in politics. People always ask me about the role of politics in faith, and I want to ask you about the role of faith in politics. Um, I just came back from uh, Indianapolis. I was giving a talk there last week and um, at the Christian Theological Seminary, and I was, they asked me to speak about um, my, the theological foundation for my commitment, our community's commitment to anti-poverty work. And so I spoke to them about what we talk about a lot here, the idea that every single person is created in the image of God and therefore deserves to live in dignity, and, but a much longer version of it. And afterwards, um, I was in dialogue with another, with a rabbinic colleague, and he was taking in all the questions, and he said, it's so interesting because two different questions keep coming in. Um, so I'm just going to ask you both of them. Half the crowd wanted to know, how can we help ensure that faith like this plays a stronger role in politics? And half the people wanted to know, what can we do to make sure that faith stays out of politics? <laughs> because they're living in Indiana, and they see how faith can play a very detrimental role in politics. And so I'm curious if you can reflect for us. I, I mean, I think many of us here would understand the danger um, of a person, uh, of, a, of a government or official praying and determining that he therefore must um, must curb the, the rights of other human beings because his God tells him so. Um, but can you reflect a little bit on, on the, the role of faith in politics? And maybe if you're willing, a little bit, if you can speak personally to this, I, I can say I've been wanting to have Representative Schiff and, and, and Eve come to ICAR for a long time because I felt like I want you to have a Jewish community. Um, well, you, and so you just I'm, wanted Adam and Eve to be in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so can you, can you reflect, would you be willing to reflect a little bit about the role of faith in, maybe in your own um, political leadership and what you see as the dangers and also opportunities when people bring uh, core faith commitments into uh, the discourse. Yeah, um, I, I was mentioning to the rabbi when she uh, pointed out to me that we were um, sitting on a basketball court, uh, which I hadn't realized uh, until I looked up and saw the hoops. Um, I, I spent half a year in Eastern Europe in 1992 when I was with the U.S. Attorney's Office here in L.A. I was assigned to... Uh, to be a consultant on criminal justice reform uh, in what, what at the time was Czechoslovakia. Um, that country actually split in two while I was there. And uh, that's part of a longer discussion, but I watched how that happened when a populist demagogue uh, started exploiting ethnic rivalries. And when I had arrived, um, my Czech friends told me there was no chance the government the country would split. A few months later, just seeing the power of this uh, Vladimir, Mechiar, Vladimir Mechiar and his demagoguery, it became all but inevitable. But, uh, but while I was in Eastern Europe, I, I took a long weekend to go to Lithuania uh, and visit the town that my great-grandparents came from, a town called Panevejis, if, if any of you have roots in the area. And I asked the old people uh, where the synagogues used to be. Um, and I was able to find two of them. One was very small, was now a, essentially a small kind of a steelwork, um, not a factory because it was too small for that. But the other was a gymnasium. And it was big enough that I knew that my great grandfather had to have been in that synagogue uh, or his father and mother. Um, the, of course, the Torah was no longer there. The Bema was no longer there. It was now a basketball court. 
so there was a hoop where the Tory had been, and you could see the balcony where the women uh, sat. Um, and it was a very poignant reminder of what had happened to the Jewish community in Lithuania. Uh, and I remember when I was a kid asking my grandmother about where we came from and what towns, because I wanted to go back there because I was very interested. Uh, and her answer was, you know, we fought like hell to get out of there. Why would you want to go back? Mm. But, um, you know, I think in terms of, of how I view my own faith and its role in my thinking and in my political life, so much of, of my Jewish upbring, upbringing has shaped what's important to me and what I pursue legislatively in ways that I, I'm not even conscious of. But to the degree that, that I am conscious of it, uh, the passage from Micah best expresses to me the role of my faith uh, in my thinking. And it's the passage that says, what is required of us but to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God? You can, I think, find just about everything you need in that three-part injunction. And maybe one of the reasons it resonates with me, in addition to justice and mercy being so central to what we do or should do as legislators, uh, is the phrase of walking humbly with thy God. Mm. And, and for me, it means that I don't often talk about my Judaism, that I would rather, rather try to live it. But obviously, that's not a point of view shared by many of my colleagues. Um, we had a very spirited debate in the Judiciary Committee recently. Um, when I was kicked off the Intel Committee, uh, and I'd like to tell you I've been kicked off better committees than that, but that wouldn't be true. Uh, I, I told Hakeem Jeffries to put me somewhere that I can be useful. And he said, well, I'd like you to put you in, in my seat uh, on the Judiciary Committee. And within my first hour of being back on the committee, I texted my staff, and I probably shouldn't have used these words, uh, I texted them, please shoot me now. Um, we were debating the rules of the committee and its jurisdiction, and, uh, and normally that's quite pro forma. Normally, it's we will oversee the Justice Department, and we will oversee the Department of Homeland Security, and we will oversee issues of civil rights. Uh, but of course, they had loaded up these normally benign rules with, we will oversee the weaponization of the federal government, and we will oversee the winnowing out of conservative agents within the FBI, and we will oversee a whole bunch of other things that are not in existence, but nonetheless the conclusion of the oversight they wish to reach. And so naturally, we tried to purge the rules of these extraneous provisions. Those efforts were unsuccessful. But I offered what I thought was a constructive amendment to at least set out one thing I thought the Judiciary Committee ought to look into, and that was the increase in domestic violent extremism, uh, the increase in anti-AAPI bigotry and hate, the increase in anti-Semitism, the increase in white nationalism. Um, this turned out to be a deeply controversial 
proposal. Um, I was accused of great wokeness, uh, and it was voted down, uh, including by one colleague uh, on the Republican side of the aisle who asked, what does AAPI mean? Uh, and was informed what it meant and that there were a great many members of the Asian and Pacific Islander community in his district that he probably should pay attention to. Um, but I, you know, for all the professions of faith, I hear from my colleagues on that committee and others, I don't see much faith operating in what they do. Or if it is, I don't recognize it. Um, at least not as I understand uh, the teachings of, of all the great faiths. Uh, so, um, I mean, how, how can you be a person of faith uh, and support someone in the highest office of the land who lies constantly, who is fundamentally indecent, uh, who can't tell right from wrong? I mean, how, how can that possibly be justified? Um, so, um, I, I will be very fortunate if I can live up to even part of the injunction of doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. Thank you. Thank you. Um, one of the people I met with in Indianapolis was um, Nigerian and he told me that um, his country loves Donald Trump and I said, how is that possible? Didn't they hear what he called people who come from Africa? And he said, you know, they saw the image of him holding the Bible and they feel like he's a religious man. I said, he was holding it upside down. <laughs> but they didn't see, you can't tell that from the photo. And so I'm just reminded as you speak of something that Senator Cory Booker said years ago, he said, don't tell me how religious you are, show me how religious you are. Show me in the way that you treat the poor. Show me in the decency that you exhibit toward others. Show me in the way that you care for those who are most vulnerable. And it really, uh, it really resonates. And I think we need more, uh, more showing and less telling. You know, I, I had a, a different conversation in a bookstore, I think only about six months into the Trump uh, administration when a gentleman uh, from Senegal who was holding a study guide for the medical boards came up to me in the bookstore and he recognized me and told me how he had been a physician in Senegal, he wanted to practice in the United States, he was doing a bunch of odd jobs while he studied for his boards, and he talked about what a tragedy it was that we had the president that we had, how much as a child and a young man he dreamed of coming here. Uh, how he venerated the country and what it stood for. And to see what the president was doing to the country just broke his heart. And I remember thinking that this person who's been in the country for less than a year knows more about what it means to be an American than the president of the United States. Mm. And, and I often, you know, to get back to the first point you were making about the attack on truth and what we have seen in the deterioration of other democracies, it is often people that have immigrated here, and even most often from people who have come from repressive regimes or countries that have lost their democracy, that were the first to warn um, of what we were witnessing, that maybe we were blind to, but they could see because they had experienced it yes. in the countries they came from.
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I remember Masha Gessen was sounding this alarm very early on, saying, I come from Russia, I understand what's happening right now, please pay attention. Um, so I think that's right. I want the, the New York Times Daily did a great um, episode sometime last week about um, ESG, about, about these standards that um, many corporations are using now for their investments, that they have to be essentially climate conscious um, investments and, um, and oriented toward, um, I think, is it equity, sustainability, and governance? And so, and now there's a law against that kind of investment. And so I want to ask you about what it means. Your, your book is called Midnight in Washington how we almost lost our democracy and still could. I want to talk about what it means to be in the 11th hour, if it's not already midnight, um, especially when it comes to climate devastation. Um, and I think that many of us in this room feel the fierce urgency of now when it comes to addressing the climate with every single tool that we have at our disposal. And what's really um, unimaginable for me is that at the very same time that nature is showing us the price that we're now paying for very deliberate decisions that were made decades ago with full knowledge that they were doing great harm to the earth, and I'm talking about both corporations and public officials who understood very well what the science was indicating but made choices anyway for the sake of their own profit that they were and power that they were gonna continue pushing us Um, that they were going to continue. Thank you, Mati. Um, that they were going to, you know, continue pushing, and you know, at least the people who had amassed enough wealth would be able to move to higher ground when it mattered. Um, I, you know, at the same moment that we're having these massive floods, you know, California is hit by wildfires. Um, we're seeing these, um, you know, all, all of the visible, tangible. Um, evidence of, of climate devastation. On the other side, we still have people who are now fighting to prohibit corporations from making the responsible choices. And so it's not like we've gotten to the point at 2023 where now we can all see how bad it is. Let's at least put our heads together and figure out how to address it. But you still have people now even amidst all of the evidence to the contrary who are continuing stubbornly to push us toward what is inevitable devastation for all of us if we don't find a way to turn this around in the immediate. How in the world do we begin to, do we, do we address this in this moment, especially in light of who you sit with in Congress, knowing, um, knowing where, their, where their hearts are and where their understanding is of this, um, this, this incredible devastation that we face? I mean, this, this to me is the, existential threat of them all. Uh, we have faced dire threats to our democracy uh, and other grave challenges, but if we don't get this one right at the end of the day, it's not gonna matter very much if we're yeah. all underwater. Um, I, uh, I think a big part of what is going to save us if we are gonna be saved as a planet and as a civilization is making the right investments in alternative forms of energy and renewable sources of energy. Um, and even on its own and even in the face of government policies that have been destructive, nonetheless and, and, and quite fortuitously, science and technology have marched on 
Uh, and we now have seen renewable sources of energy come down below the cost of oil, below the cost of natural gas. It would have happened much sooner if we weren't still incentivizing the production of oil and gas. And I think what we ought to strive to do as a government is end the incentives for the oil industry, which are crazy. Um, we, should be, we should be putting windfall profit taxes on oil companies, not giving them tax benefits. And at the same time, we need long-term sustainable government incentives for sustainable energy. Yes. Uh, when when they, we pass them and they expire, it, it makes it so difficult for uh, industry to actually plan around an enduring uh, economic environment in which they can invest in renewable sources of energy. Um, if we make the right policy decisions, if we make the right policy changes, we can get ahead of the tipping point. And if we don't, then God help us. People were sledding in La Crescenta last month. Um, now, we've had sprinklings of snow before, but I don't think my constituents have ever got to go sledding in my right. district. Right. The fire seasons are starting earlier, they're lasting longer, they're more devastating, and of course it's happening all over the globe. Places that shouldn't be underwater are underwater. Um, there will come an inevitable point where even the other party can't dispute this anymore, but the question is how long is that going to take? Uh, what we did in the Inflation Reduction Act, the most massive investment in attacking climate change in history, was hugely important, but it has to be just the beginning. Mm. But, but I do want to point to how much difference elections make. What we demonstrated in two years uh, was a level of productivity we haven't really seen since the New Deal. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the American Rescue Plan, the Chips and Science Act, the Infrastructure Bill, uh, it shows what you can do when you control both houses and you actually want to govern responsibly and move the country forward. Um, those bills are already changing behavior uh, in a very positive way. I was in Syracuse just by happy coincidence uh, on the same day that President Biden was in Syracuse uh, and I was invited to join him with the announcement of a massive new investment in high-tech manufacturing in Syracuse, New York. Um, I spoke to the CEO of Micron who was building that massive new infrastructure in terms of, of that chip manufacturing. And he was quite plain that it would not be done, it would not be happening there, it probably wouldn't be happening anywhere in the United States but for the Congress setting the right incentives. And the same is true in the environmental area. So um, if we're, when we are able to recapture both houses, we need to build on what we've done. And we need to keep marching forward. And, and I would just say also, and I, I, Rabbi, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. You asked me about the, the role of faith and governance um, and, and vice versa. There was a time when it appeared there were a broader cross-section of religious voices, religious leadership, talking about the planet because of a shared understanding across faiths about the need to be good stewards of the earth. I haven't seen that as much in the last several years, and maybe I'm just not, mm -hmm. maybe I'm just not looking in the right places, but it seems to me this is an area that ought to cross faiths, uh, where there, there is a possibility for a much broader coalition. Um, 
you know, people in Congress do respond to the faith community. Um, we see that certainly how some have responded uh, on issues like reproductive freedom in all the worst ways. Uh, and I, I'd be interested to, to get your perspective on whether that's, that happened more in the past, whether that's happening more now, or, or where you think the faith community can work in partnership with us. Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. And I do think that in the last decade, there has emerged a very real fusion movement, to use the language of Bishop Barber, a multi-faith um, movement for justice in the country that's really about lifting up the voices of clergy and faith communities around the country who share really deep and profound concerns um, about climate, about reproductive rights, about the treatment of, of trans people in this country. And I have to say, I'm so, I've been watching in St. Louis what's been going on in Tennessee over the course of the last couple of um, months and you know the, the, the number of bills that have been brought forward to, um, to criminalize trans people in this country is absolutely devastating. And I know that I, I would, I think what, what many of us would like to see in terms of protections coming from the federal government will not be able to come under this Congress, but we can use our voices to, sh you know, to again, shift the window here um, and talk about what our needs and expectations are in order to, um, in order to protect uh, our, our family. And so I, I think that we're seeing faith leaders um, not only use uh, their own vo our own voices, but also find ways to each other. And um, my hope is that that will only continue. I mean, Trump did, Trump brought a lot of people together, let's say. I mean, five million Americans took to the streets in order to, you know, to protest the weekend of his inauguration, and that was unprecedented. And, um, and of course, it wasn't long before that turned into a circular firing squad, but my hope is that at the heart of that very movement um, is a really values-driven, uh, a desire to, to find our way to one another so that we can uh, build together a new America. Um, I, I know that there are a couple of people here, especially our Minyan Setic leadership, who have some questions. I see that Liz has one. Um, I, I want to I just ask one last thing before but I'll, go to, I'll go to Liz. I think Brianna has one and Todd has one. Unfortunately, we don't have time for everybody, but we'll see how we do, Peter. I'll come to you if we have time. Um, I want to ask you about Israel. Um, I know this is a very hard question to answer. Um, I will tell you that as a rabbi and a person with um, family in Israel um, and somebody who um, has very deep ties to the state of Israel, um, I am deeply concerned um, to the point of anguish over what's going on. Um, I do see a direct line between an increasingly extremist rhetoric um, over there over the course of the past several decades um, and uh, increased settlement expansion and this current government, which, um, which is openly racist, supremacist, illiberal, and ultranationalist. And I think that it puts America in a very difficult position um, because, uh, because in many ways, people who care deeply about, um, about the people who live in that land and who care deeply about Israel's future um, have to use our voices to speak out against um, the, the excesses and the growing trend here. Um, and at the same time, I think that there are there continue to be very real um, threats to Israel, security threats, and otherwise. And so I'm I'm curious to know how you navigate this um, this moment uh, as as a Democratic Congressperson, and I know somebody who cares deeply um, about the state of Israel, about democracy. 
Um, I, as a rabbi, hear the voices of, um, of hundreds of thousands of Israelis on the streets calling me to help support a flourishing democracy in Israel and to help be part of dreaming up and then supporting the building of a truly just and equal society there. I'm curious how you're navigating this moment given all of your commitments. Yeah. Well, uh, I remember several years ago um, being on a trip to Israel. This was before uh, Kabul fell to the Taliban. Um, we, I was traveling with a speaker. We went to... Um, Israel and Afghanistan on the same trip, and I remember being so distraught um, on returning home that the picture in Afghanistan looked more encouraging than the picture in Israel. Um, and of course, we saw what took place thereafter in Afghanistan. Um, but what was so distressing was it was very hard to visualize, and visualize a, a path forward in Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and it looked like Israel was heading to um, a terrible cul-de-sac, uh, and by virtue predominantly of Israel's internal politics, uh, it was incapable of getting off the path that it was on. Uh, I'm deeply concerned about the, the members of the current government and the character of the current government, the anti-democratic legislation regarding the Supreme Court. Uh, what I have tried to do is both publicly uh, speak out about my concerns, uh, to be constructive in my criticism, uh, to always underscore uh, the need for a strong U.S.-Israel relationship and my love for Israel, uh, but also my love for democracy uh, and, and the profound concerns I have uh, over the degree to which Israel is moving away from a two-state solution, which is the only solution, in my view, that makes any sense. Um, and, and then I've had a lot of opportunities over the years, uh, particularly as uh, when I was the chairman of the Intel Committee or the ranking member of the Intel Committee, to have frequent visits to, to Israel and the West Bank uh, and to use those meetings that I had with Israelis and Palestinians uh, to underscore the need to, uh, to move towards a two-state solution that was respectful of the rights and freedoms and security of both Israelis and Palestinians, uh, to take issue with uh, actions of either that move the peace process away from any hope of fruition. Um, and uh, this is how I've tried to navigate it. Um, it's got it even more difficult, and it looks like it will be even more difficult in the days and weeks ahead. Um, Sadly, tragically, I think that um, some in Israel have taken a page out of what they witnessed in tombs of our own democratic backsliding. Mm -hmm. uh, the efforts that Donald Trump has made to attack the justice system and the, independent of the independence of the courts, the legitimacy of the courts, the legitimacy of any press that's critical of him are examples that have been followed uh, by Israeli politicians, as well as by people all over the world. Uh, I remember uh, going to the Munich National Security Conference with John McCain, and one of the, one of the wonderful things about traveling with John McCain is you, uh, he can invite anyone who wants to dinner, and they will come. And we had dinner with Bill Gates and Bono. 
which is not my usual dinner company. <laughs> and after, you know, after dinner and we were drinking beer because, of course, it was Munich, uh, we started telling jokes. And Bono told a joke about being Irish. Uh, and then he got very serious and he said that I'm very proud of being Irish, I'm very proud of Ireland, but Ireland, like most countries, is just a country. America is also an idea. And that idea has been so badly tarnished over the last several years. And what's more, um, people have, have taken the example of our former president and used it in exactly the most destructive ways. Uh, and so, I do think we need to speak out about the deterioration of democracy at home as we do abroad. Uh, probably the most important thing we can do to support democracy in other parts of the world, including the Middle East, is to perfect our own democracy. But, uh, but we also need to be deeply engaged as a country uh, in trying to help the parties get to a peaceful two-state solution. Um, it will not happen on their own. Uh, there is no other country that can play this role. Uh, much as the idea of America as an indispensable nation has gotten a bad name, we do remain indispensable. Uh, Freedom-loving people around the world still turn to us because there's nowhere else to turn. They're not going to turn to China, and they're not going to turn to Russia, and they're not going to turn to Europe with all of its problems. We still occupy a very unique place, and, and we have to live up to that responsibility. We are in a global struggle now between autocracy and democracy. Um, and while we have been fiddling and burning in the United States, we have seen the autocrats march on. China would go around the world, its diplomats with photographs of January 6th, hmm. uh, and make the case that American democracy doesn't work. Hmm. It's too brittle, it's too unresponsive, it's too archaic that the world should embrace the China model. But let's make no mistake about what that is. The China model is totalitarianism. Uh, and that is not an alternative. Uh, I do think that, that the world and our country move in great cycles. Um, and, and we are at a low ebb. I don't know if it's midnight. Maybe I should have titled the book 11.30 p.m., uh, we may have some distance to go of greater darkness before we begin to see the light. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but uh, and I know, Rabbi, how often and how well you quote Martin Luther King. One of the things that we have discovered, much to our shock in the last several years, uh, is that the moral arc of the universe may be long and it may bend towards justice, but it doesn't bend of its own accord. Mm. It only bends when we force it to bend. Uh, and we need to do that both here in Israel and elsewhere in the world. Thank you. I would love if we could ask these three questions, but I don't know. I want to make sure you have enough time because we are just at 2 o'clock. We, we do not have enough time. Okay. Um, okay. So with my apologies, um, I hope you'll, we'll get another opportunity to, um, to sit with you. And, um, it, it's, that, that's simply our way of getting you to invite me to come back. Yeah, we are inviting you to come back. Absolutely. <laughs> we would love 
to have you here for Shabbos lunch anytime. Um, thank you so much. I know how busy you are, and we're deeply grateful for your time, and thank you for really inspiring us today. Uh, thank you. Shabbat shalom, everyone. It's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.